All right, our ushers are uh, bringing note sheets around for you now and pencils so that you can take notes if that is helpful to you as we dive into the Word together and study what God has prepared for us to study today. We also have Bibles, so if you need a Bible, make sure and raise your hand and indicate, indicate that to the guys, and they will make sure you get a Bible there so you can follow along with us. <clears throat> really appreciate the work that uh, our decorating team did. I think the place looks really beautiful, and... Uh, God has, has given us this great place where we can worship and we want to be good stewards of it. So uh, thank you, church, for supporting uh, some of the upgrades that we have been doing uh, over the last year. We've been really trying to, uh, little bit by little bit, make this place uh, feel a little more beautiful, a little bit more reflective of the glory of our God. So uh, we're working our way through building at a time, and I'm grateful that we were able to experience uh, a great change this, this holiday season. Uh, don't forget, if you are interested at all in coming to the Women's Tea, this is your last weekend to sign up. So we would love to have you there. Make sure you sign up in the, in the um, courtyard after the service is done today so that we can uh, let you be a part of that and we can experience uh, the joy of the Christmas Tea together. Also, if you're a gentleman and you would like to help us work at the Christmas Tea and you have not been invited to do that as of yet, then talk to myself right after the service and we can get you signed up for that. The guys typically work the kitchen and we do all the serving and the waiting for the ladies so we can show them support and uh, let them just be free to have a great evening and not have to work too hard with all the, the details of, of the service. So if you're interested in that, talk to me afterwards. Uh, I do want to take a minute. Uh, this is the weekend after Thanksgiving and uh, from time to time what we like to do is give you an opportunity as a church uh, to express to your brothers and sisters in Christ just something that you're thankful for that the Lord has blessed you with, something that God has perhaps um, provided for you, or maybe He has answered a prayer in some particular way, or maybe He just revealed some truth about Himself that you're particularly grateful for this holiday season. So what we want to do right now is if you'd just like to stand where you're at, um, I would love to hear from you just about something that the Lord is doing in your life that you are grateful for. Would somebody like to share? Go ahead, Amy. Amen, amen. Uh, Amy and Andy are um, moving forward with the adoption for JoJo, and uh, the Lord has been uh, ticking off each box that needs to be accomplished, and they're making progress and getting certified for that, and so hopefully that progress won't take too much longer, and uh, JoJo will be officially a part of your family for the rest of his life. We're really grateful for that. Thank you for your willingness to serve God that way. Go ahead. Would you like to share? Um, I'm thankful that my relatives from Oklahoma found me after 13 years, and I'm going Hey, praise the Lord. That's excellent. That's great. Anybody else grateful for something today? Mary. Amen. Giovanni and, and Pandora are wonderful little children, so we're grateful that they get to be a part of your life and then by you attending here, we get to be a part of your life, too, and we're happy to get to know you, and, and we're grateful for those kids. That's, that's a wonderful blessing. Anybody else? Go ahead. And I'm grateful for the way that the Lord is working through our adoption situation. And right now, the, the path is clear. We, we hopefully are going to be able to adopt Rosie in a number of months. There's still a lot of things to be accomplished before then, but we're so very grateful to be able to have her in our lives. 
And uh, my family's still up in Placerville. We were up there for Thanksgiving over the holiday. And uh, because there are a lot of family up there, the cousins and uncles and aunts, I let them stay up there while I came back here to preach. But uh, just being away from her and from the boys for a day is, I'm already missing them. So just grateful for family and, and for also for the fact that we have a church family here. I've, we had 60 people at dinner on Thanksgiving, which was insane. But you don't have to have a huge family to experience that when your church family is as big as our church family is. We always have brothers and sisters that at the drop of a hat, if we have a need or if we need prayer or if we just need comfort, a phone call away, we've got people who can mobilize and can be there to help one another. So to be a part of God's church family is a tremendous blessing as well. So let's, let's lift up, up these praises and thank the Lord for being the God who provides and the God who is everything that we need. Let's, let's ask him to bless also our time in the word as we prepare to open up his scripture together. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? I'm so very grateful, Lord, for your mighty provision, and I thank you, God, that as we have lifted up things over the months, uh, that you have answered our prayers, that you have given us patience to wait if the answer has not been clear. I thank you, Lord, for the things that you have given and also for the things that you have held back from us, Lord. You are a wonderful Father, and you know exactly what we need. And so I do pray, God, that you would continue to grow this church family and help us to extend the love of Christ to the people in our community, Lord, who so desperately need you. Father, we are surrounded by lostness. There is so much wandering in the world as people don't really know who you are and they have a, maybe a picture of you but it's incomplete and they're not, they're not clear on how serious their sin is and how it keeps us away from you. So I pray, Lord God, that in love we would be able to preach the truth to people in, in such a way that we could see that your arms are open, that you are inviting people to be a part of your um, family for eternity, Lord God. Please help our minds and hearts as we comprehend your word together today, Lord. Help our understanding and our interpretation of things. I ask, Lord, that we would be gentle as we come before you and not stubborn, but that you would soften us and let uh, the soil of our hearts uh, be supple to receive the seed of the gospel, Lord, so that you might grow in us a faith that bears great fruit for you. We love you, God, and thank you for all these things. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen. Well, last week, brothers and sisters, We spoke about how justification by faith redefines our identity as people. Uh, We read that in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith by adoption. And so we celebrated last week this wonderful truth that God took people like us who were not just neutral to God, but who were enemies to God, who were sinners against the word, who were rebels against the kingdom of heaven. He took us from that state of rebellion and brought us out from underneath his wrath so that we might become children of God, so that we might belong at his table instead of across the battle line from him. We talked about how as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, how this justification by faith has redefined who we are as we are now clothed in the righteousness that belongs to Jesus. As God wraps his son around our lives and we become more like Christ We take on his attributes, we take on his truth, and we begin to live in ways that more accurately reflect his glory and his goodness. And then we read that we who are in Christ are, are, are Abraham's children by the fulfillment of the promise that God made to him in covenant. That if you belong to Christ, you are officially Abraham's heirs to the promises that were given to him in the the covenant that we've been looking at in Genesis chapter 12. So to put on Christ is to be redefined by him, to be reappointed to a new family by adoption. And as you take this new identity 
and this new belonging, some of what you were will necessarily pass away in that process of transformation. Some of of what you were was not holy. Some of what you were is not righteous and pleasing to the Lord God. And so coming into his family means that God has the freedom to now take and prune away those parts of us that don't really belong in heaven with him. By drawing near to the Lord God, whatever we lost in this transformation, we are gaining immeasurably more by knowing his grace and being brought near to his love. Paul also pointed out that the salvation that Jesus brings to us impacts our understanding of freedom. And though we touched briefly on that topic last week, I promised that this week we would look at it more closely. We learned last week at the end of chapter 3 that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That the laws that God gave were laws that we could not keep perfectly. And so we were all captive under those laws. We were captive under the law until the coming of faith. And that the law acted as a kind of guardian until Christ came. And it was possible for us to trust in Him. This morning, we're going to return our thoughts to that concept of freedom. Last week, we focused on the transformation of our identity. This week, we're talking about the transformation of our understanding of freedom. As we look together at Galatians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 7 today. And so if you've got your Bibles open there, you can follow along as I read out loud. The Apostle Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, I mean that the heir... As long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when we were children, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So chapter 4 begins with a Greek figure of speech. In the original language it says, which essentially Paul is saying, Here is what I mean by all of what I just told you at the end of chapter 3. So we can see that Paul's not starting a new train of thought here. Rather, he is building upon what he was explaining in the verses we studied last week. The redefinition of our identity and the redefinition of our freedom. This week we're going to see how intimately connected those two concepts are for Paul. The last verse of chapter 3, if you remember, was a very bold statement. The apostle Paul said... If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So this promise that was given to Abraham, that that a great nation would come from him, that he would have a son of his own, that son being Isaac, and that Isaac would then go on to multiply and his progeny would produce more progeny, that all the nations of the world would be blessed, that is being fulfilled as Gentiles like you and me are being given grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In doing so, we are being connected to the family of Abraham and we are experiencing the fulfillment of that promise through faith. This past Thursday, uh, you were spending time with your family. You were considering all the reasons that you have to be thankful for God. And as you were reflecting on the unending list of things 
that God has done to show you His love and His grace. I hope that at some point you took time to reflect on the fact that through His Son Jesus, the sacrifice was made that enabled you to be free. That Jesus Christ going to the cross and suffering a gruesome sinner's death, that being buried and then being risen on the third day in a miraculous way, was, it was the power that was necessary to separate you from death and give you spiritual life where death used to reign. When Jesus Christ, who was the epitome of moral perfection, voluntarily allowed himself to suffer like a shameful sinner on the cross, he did more than simply pay the penalty for our sins by absorbing the righteous wrath of the Father. He also secured a new identity for all who had put their trust in him. Those who are in Christ Jesus by faith are no longer His enemies. Every debt we owe to Him has been absorbed by the only begotten Son. And when God in His righteousness looks upon us, He doesn't see our lies. He doesn't look upon us and see our selfishness. He doesn't look down on this church and see people who are full of rebelliousness and, 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 and hard hearts. He sees Jesus Christ in us. He sees the righteousness of His Son wrapped around children that He has made His own through adoption. And so I pray that your thankfulness this holiday season started with the breathtaking taking fact that you have experienced a transformation of identity that is so profound that you have literally escaped from the flames of hell to find yourself seated at the table of promise. And amazingly, that happened by no work of your own. If you trust Jesus as your Savior, you belong to the great and sovereign ruler of the galaxy, and you are an heir to all that belongs to him. And when we think of that word heir, we think of people who have had the good fortune of benefiting from the accomplishments of their parents who came before them. An heir is someone who has something great coming their way by way of their lineage. Now, I, I grew up a pretty poor kid over in Shore Acres, and so we didn't have a whole lot growing up. But I remember there was a TV show, and I'm going to date myself here. We used to watch when I was a kid. Silver Spoons. How many of you guys have ever heard of that show? A few of you, all right. Silver Spoons was a show about a little kid who grew up just normal like most kids. Single mom was raising him up and uh, didn't really get along with his stepdad and so his mom sends him off to boarding school and then somewhere in the course of the pilot episode he finds out he has a father that his father never knew that he existed. And his father happens to be a, a millionaire toy tycoon. This guy who's who's built an industry off toys. And so he invites this kid to come and live with him. And suddenly this guy goes from being a regular everyday kid to realizing that he's the heir to this toy fortune. And he lives in a house where there's unending amounts of entertainment and toys. They have, I remember, literally a scale, small model of a train that would just go through the front, the front room of that house. And as a kid, I thought, man, I need a train like that. That would that, be so cool to have a little steam engine in my front room. And I remember being so envious of Ricky Schroeder and the adventures that he got to go on with his dad, who in many ways was just a grown-up big kid, and how, how he was heir to this great fortune of toys and, and, and blessings. And so sometimes when we think about an heir, we think of somebody who has it all laid out for them, who's got it made. But Paul's going to pump the brakes for a second, and he's going to remind his readers that, yes, being an heir is a tremendous blessing, but a young heir, before they are mature before they are old enough to qualify for their inheritance, is in many ways just as limited as a slave would have been in that society. 
Paul is presenting a cultural metaphor that should help us to form our understanding of what freedom really is, while also shedding light on the role that the law plays for those who will believe in Jesus, but have not yet submitted themselves to him. So as Westerners, we carry a lot of unrealistic ideas about freedom. And so I want to just take a brief moment here to develop this idea and this concept of what freedom really means to us and how Paul wants to see freedom with the eyes of God. So freedom is defined as the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants without hindrance, without restraint. The power to, uh, and the right to act, speak, and think how one wants without hindrance and without restraint. It means just being able to do what you want to do. Freedom means not being held back by somebody else's rules or boundaries or borders. It, it's also defined as the absence of subjugation or subjection to foreign domination or despotic government. Not being ruled by somebody from afar who tells you what you can or cannot do. And thirdly, it's sometimes referred to as the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved. Those are the concepts that help us define this idea of freedom. Now, most everybody wants to be free because being free means you get what you want. It means not being hindered by an outside force that's going to limit your choices and abilities. But I hope that as we read that definition just a moment ago, that we're beginning to see that there are some very real hang-ups to this basic concept of freedom. Let me point something out to you. No one is perfectly free. No one. You can think about the most rich individual in the world. You can think about the most influential person in the world, the most high-profile politician who sets legislation and makes laws. No one in the world is 100% perfectly free. Though you may know what you want, that doesn't mean that you have the means to get what you want. I remember uh, growing up, there's a movie that I watched every single Christmas. It was The Christmas Story. And that little blonde-haired kid who wanted that Red Ryder BB gun. And he would go to great lengths to try to convince his mom and dad that they needed to buy him that BB gun for Christmas. But ultimately, he didn't have the power to get it for himself. He w the whole movie hinges on the tension of him depending on mom and dad, giving him the thumbs up or the th thumbs down about whether or not he gets that gift. And for all of us, there's something that we have wanted in life that we haven't had the power to obtain for ourselves, isn't there? We all run into that glass ceiling of ability. We are limited in our spending power. We only have so many resources available to us. We lack the knowledge of how to make our dreams a reality. And we lack the power to overcome the physical limitations of this fallen world that we live in. So we would love to be ultimately free, but no one is ultimately free. Nobody wants cancer. But we don't always know how to undo cancer when it comes into our lives. We don't necessarily have the power to erase it from our bodies. We can go and do chemotherapy. We can take the radiation that they recommend for us. But ultimately, no one is absolutely free to just say, I don't want cancer, and then have it be gone. Nobody is ultimately free. And here's uh, something that might shock you a little bit. It's going to require some explanation. God himself is not perfectly free. And let me explain by what I mean. God is bound by his own character 
to do what is right and true and loving, isn't he? God is not free to commit sin. God is not free to break the laws of righteousness and goodness. There's a classic question that often gets asked in theology classrooms. If God is all-powerful, can he create a rock that is too big for him to move? And the idea there is you create a catch-22. If God can create a rock that's too big for him to move, then he's, he's proved his weakness. But if he can't create that rock, doesn't that prove his weakness? And the problem with that question is that you don't prove perfection by weakness. God has to be bound by certain laws of goodness and truth. The, the difference is those laws aren't outside of him. They are who he is. They are his very character. So God will never commit sin. He will never lie. He cannot cheat. He cannot act in a way that is disgraceful. So God is bound by his own character to do what is righteous and true and good. And secondly, God is bound by his own promises. Because God cannot lie, everything that he says he will do, he must do. He cannot go back on a covenant. So even God has some limitations. But you might look at those two limitations and think, well, those are good limitations. And that's true. See, not all limitations are bad. And that's part of what the Apostle Paul, I believe, is trying to reveal to us here. That freedom, absolute freedom, should not be our goal. It should not be the thing that we're all shooting for. Something else we need to realize as we understand this concept of freedom is that you are not the only being with a will. There are billions of other people in this world that have a will. They have a desire to do what they want to do. And so they are competing for the same resources that are needed to accomplish their personal will, just like you're competing for those resources to accomplish your individual will. In a sense, freedom is a type of zero-sum game, which means that in order to, for you to be perfectly free, that means the freedoms of others must be limited. Otherwise, that would infringe upon your perfect freedom. So you see how no one is perfectly free. All of us are struggling to try to get as much freedom as we can, but no one is perfectly free. Secondly, we need to understand that there is a covetousness in us that makes us desire to be, if not perfectly free, then as free as we can possibly be. The idea of being perfectly free has a, a certain allure and draw to it that plays off of our ego. We want to be great. We want to have our will be done. And we often think that our will be done, no matter what it is, is better than our neighbor's will. Because one's freedom is threatened or at least put into question by another person's power, that means that the desire for freedom fuels conflict between those who have power and those who do not. And I think the most basic structure that we see this played out in life is in the family. Parents have power that children do not have, right? And so children, by their sinful nature, constantly strive against the power that mom and dad have. They have their own individual will, though they do not have the power to enact that will. And so they're constantly pushing back against mom and dad's boundaries and borders, constantly trying to secure for themselves a greater freedom to do what they want to do. When I wake up in the morning and my kid says, I want to have Captain Crunch for breakfast. And I say, well, you really should have some eggs today because eggs are better for you. And that's when the fit begins. That's when my child, who has a will of his own but doesn't have the power, tries to see if he can create that power by throwing a fit to try to get what he wants. 
There are little power struggles within the family dynamic every day of life. And I don't know how many of us have noticed this, but the, the power that moms and dads display in our lives is good for us. Now, nobody has a perfect mom or a dad, so some of the things your mom and dad have tried to get you to do or not do, we're not probably the best. But how many of you as grown adults can look back on your childhood and can identify the fact that you struggled against your mom and dad's rules? You pushed back, you tried to be free, and you couldn't wait for that day when you can get away from your mom and dad's house and be a free man or a free woman and make your rules for yourself. You were convinced that mom had no idea, they were out of touch with reality, and all those regulations and all those restrictions they put on you were only limiting your happiness and your freedom. And then you grew a little older. And maybe the Lord blessed you with a spouse. And there's somebody else in your life you're beholden to. And then maybe, just maybe God blessed you with a couple of children. And as you got older, something happened. Something changed. And your mom and your dad aren't so stupid anymore. All that wisdom that they were trying to pour into your life that you saw before as a hindrance and as a, a, a restriction on your freedom, you begin to realize that they were giving to that to you because they cared about you and that there was a lot of good in the things that they shared and a lot of good in the restrictions that they put on your life. They weren't trying to rob your freedom. They were trying to secure a greater freedom through you by wisdom. Now, I know our moms and our dads aren't perfect, so that doesn't mean that everything your mom and dad says is great for you, but that generally holds true in life, is that moms and dads want what is best for their kids. And our Father in Heaven is a greater version of that. He's a perfect version of a mom or a dad. The Lord wants what is best for us. And so He has devised regulations and restrictions and boundaries, and He has, he has stopped us from getting some of the things that we want because those things are not what is best for us. And so as we struggle and strive against this Father who wants our best, we often think we are securing our freedom in doing so, when in reality, we are breaking apart our relationship with the one who provides freedom for us. So this covenant has got to be realized, that in us there is a desire to be more free from, than our neighbors are, that we often push back against power because we want, we want to have utter freedom against those who would keep us from doing what we want. And we see that in the Garden of Eden, don't we? We see that in the very first man and woman, that they had everything they needed. God had provided for their needs, and life was beautiful. There wasn't pain or death, that God was with them. His presence was near. And yet the deceptive voice of the serpent convinced that first man and that first woman that there was something God was holding back from them, that their father who had created them was not giving them everything he could give them, and that if they just ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then they would be like God. They would be able to take his power and be what God alone was. And so this desire for freedom, we see its roots even in the Garden of Eden. The third thing I want to point out is that this powerful tension between our will for freedom and those who have power over us sheds light on an inevitable problem. To be perfectly free is to be necessarily lonely. Perfect freedom is not always a loving gift. In fact, perfect freedom is always, in some ways, an, exclus an exclusion of love. In order to love another person, 
you have to be willing to sacrifice some of your freedom for their good. That is how love works. God loves you, and in order to love you, He has sacrificed greatly on your behalf to draw you near to Him. You have children, then you know what it means to sacrifice so that they will be well-fed and well-clothed and taken care of. You give up your free time. You give up your entertainment so that you can be there for them and nurture them and care for them. Love, by its very nature, sacrifices a portion of freedom for the benefit of someone else. We're not at Galatians 5 yet, but when we get there, Paul is going to say, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So Paul's not saying that freedom is a bad thing. He's not trying to say that freedom is evil and love is the enemy of freedom. But what he is trying to help us to realize here is that we need to see love and freedom through God's eyes. That we cannot let the world define our, our understanding of what good freedom is. Let us come to God's word with a willingness to yield to the Lord's definition of things. By the truth found in His Scripture, what kind of freedom should we desire? And how should we be willing to let go of perceived freedoms if they do more to limit us than to fulfill us and to help us be a people of love? In the culture that the Galatians were familiar with, the act of passing from childhood to adulthood was a very significant landmark. That was true for both the Jewish individuals and the Gentile individuals in that culture. And so in the Jewish tradition, if you were uh, of the seed of, of, of Adam in a heritage sense, and when you had a son who became 12 years old, the day after your 12th birthday, you celebrated something called a bar mitzvah. Do you know what bar mitzvah means? Bar means son, and mitzvah refers to the commandments. Son of the law. You at the age of 12 and one day were no longer technically a son or daughter of your mother and father, but now you are a son or daughter of the law in a legal sense. So prior to that time, if you committed a crime against the community, they would bring you back to your mom and your dad, and your mom and dad would, would judge you for that. They would take care of the punishment. But once you became 12, the society that you lived in said, you are now responsible for the law yourself. And if you break these laws, then you will be held accountable for them. There was a ceremony there was an acknowledgement, and, a, and, a, and they were verified as, as true adults in the culture. And so those young people believed and understood that there was expectations put on them now. Do we do that in our society? No, we don't. And I think our society hurts a bit because of it. The young people in our society don't know when they are really expected to be adults, and because of our great love and compassion for our young ones, we sort of allow them to continue to be children, even in when they're 21, when they're 25, we're still treating them as if there is no real expectation on them to be grown contributors to society. And I think that really handicaps our young people. It hinders them from growing because they don't know when they're expected to behave like adults. It used to be in America that when you got your license at age 16, that was kind of like the rite of passage. You now had freedom to travel away from your home. You had responsibilities because you had to pay for your car and your gas and your insurance. And so you started to have to act more like a grown-up. But today, we don't expect that of our young ones. In Galatians, in the day of the Galatians, they had a clear defining line when you were either a child or an adult. That was true of the Gentile uh, culture as well. A Roman citizen at his father's discretion 
when they were turned, when they were somewhere in between the ages of 14 and 17, when they started to display uh, more maturity and more adult frame of mind, then that father would say, it is time for you to become a man. They would organize a celebration down in the city square, and that young man or young woman would bring their toys or their dolls, and they would leave them in the, in the city square. And they would proclaim to the, the community that my son has become a man, or my daughter has become a woman, and is leaving childish things behind. And then they would feast, and they would celebrate that child's progress in growth and maturity, and those toys would be given away to other kids. There was a clear line being drawn. You are now expected to behave like an adult. You are responsible. You've been given new freedoms, but you also have the responsibilities of no longer being a child. So in both the Jewish and Gentile traditions, prior to becoming a child, or prior to a child becoming an adult, they were subject to heavy regulation, either by their own father or by a steward who was in direct charge of helping them to grow and learn uh, the things that a child needed to learn. We know from last week that the guardian being spoken of here, the warden, the tutor, is in fact the law in, in this metaphor that the law acts as a guide or a guardian to us that does limit our freedom, but also makes sure that we are learning the things that we're going to need to know for when we are grown. So who is the heir that Paul is talking about? If the law is the guide, the guardian, the tutor, then who is the heir? It can't be everyone, because not everyone is of the seed of Adam. Not everyone is an heir of God, are they? Not everyone will graduate out of that guardianship one day. Many people reject salvation from Christ and they stay under that guardian to the last day of their life. So what we're going to do now is we're going to look to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to flip there. Again, we're going to allow Paul to interpret himself. In Ephesians chapter 1, we have an extended section where Paul goes into the blessings of what it means to be his by adoption. And we're not going to have the time to go through the whole chapter today. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6. If you have time in your devotions this week, I would encourage you to read the rest of this chapter. It's a wonderful expression of how God loves us into his family. But these first few verses uh, do us a lot of good as we're trying to understand this metaphor in Galatians chapter 4. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 and read verses 3 through 6. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Now this chapter in Ephesians has so much more to say, but we're just going to look at these few verses. And we're going to see how it informs us of this concept of the heir and the steward and the law and freedom. Those who are found in Christ have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is a wonderful truth, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Note how Paul words that very specifically. It's not that we will be blessed one day when we get to heaven. It's that we have been blessed right now, currently. There is a surety there. God has declared it, and it is so. It is not described as hope on the horizon. It is described as present reality. We have every blessing in the heavenly places. They are ours because we are in Christ Jesus. 
Who are these incredibly blessed people that have every blessing from the heavenly places? They are those who are chosen by God. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We've been talking about will, right? As we were thinking about freedom and how freedom is an expression of the will. But here, God is expressing his will by choosing us to be a part of his family. These incredibly blessed people are the elect, those whom God has set aside from the foundations of the world to display in their lives his mercy and his grace and his love through salvation. God is the one exerting his will here, not man. In order to free us, God has to change our will. Now, why does he have to do that? Because the scripture makes it plain to us that the will of man is wickedness. Our sinful nature causes us to want to go against the good things of God. That is what we are by default prone to do. If we are left to our own devices, all of us will make a choice. And every single one of us, without exception, will choose to rebel against God. And so this God, who like a father who knows better for us, is going to interject himself into the problem. He is going to infringe upon what we perceive to be our freedom so that he can give us something better than we would ever want for ourselves. Is that a concept that people are able to accept easily? Not usually. Remember, freedom is a zero-sum game. So if God is doing the choosing, that means that I don't get to do the choosing. God is essentially infringing upon my personal freedom in order to set me free from sin. And a lot of people really push back against that idea. The doctrine of election here is threatening our innate desire to be free and to choose for ourselves the destiny and the future that we want for ourselves. But what the scripture tells us is that when left to our own devices, man will only choose to separate from God's authority. We will not choose to be near to him. So here Paul is linking the blessings of adoption to the doctrine of election. And that makes perfect sense. Do you remember last week how we spoke about orphans and how an orphan doesn't get to choose what family they are a part of, right? They are in the position of need. It is the mother and the father that choose to adopt someone into their family. And that is how it is with us as rebels to God's kingdom, as those who oppose the grace and the will of God. We don't get to say one day, I'm going to fight off God, I'm going to do my own thing, and the next day say, well, you have to make me your son, I'm going to be a part of your family. Instead, God sees us in our broken state and knows that we are helpless to, to save ourselves. And he has to reach into our mess of sin and pull us out, even against our will, so that we can be made new in him. And in doing so, he's transforming our understanding of what freedom really is. We've got a, uh, something to be praying about right now in our congregation um, Matt Sherman, who is uh, training to be an elder right now. He's our worship leader. He's got a sister. Her name's Cassidy. If you've never met Cassidy, she's a wonderful young lady. And uh, she's one of those people that sees that, that there's needs throughout the world, and she wants to help meet those needs. So even though she's only about 24 years old, I believe, she's a registered nurse, and she has a heart for adoption. So she, the Lord has not yet brought her a husband, and, but that's not going to slow her down. She has gone through the process of being certified, she has uh, gotten herself 
prepared, and she has received two foster children that she's now housing and taking care of. And that's something amazing to accomplish by the age of 24. I, I don't think I accomplished anything that cool by the age I was 24. Now, in um, Cassidy's journey of adoption here in, in, in foster care, there was a young boy whom she took as an emergency placement for a short amount of time. And that young boy uh, was only going to be with her for a little while because his sisters were placed in a home, a foster home. And eventually, when they were ready, he was sent to be a part of that foster home so he could be reunited with his siblings. Over the course of the last few weeks, uh, that family has decided that three children is too much for them to handle. And so they're going to have to find a new home for that young boy. That young boy loved being with Cassidy, and he has asked, can I be with Cassidy? As much as he would love that, he doesn't have the right to choose it for himself. Cassidy has to be willing and able to take him back into her home. So be praying because there's a lot of decisions that have to be made and we're hoping that God just lines things up because right now she already has two children and that's as much as she can handle. And so in order for her to take this other boy back into her home, the Lord would have to provide a way for those two children to go back with their father. And the father's working on it. He's trying to make progress, but things have not been resolved yet. So we're praying for Cassidy. But we see that here we've got a perfect example of how the, the orphan is, is only allowed into a home when a mother and father says yes, when they choose them in. And this chapter in Ephesians has, has, has helps us to understand that the Lord God has a plan. And he's always known that he would redeem the world precisely in his own way. So even before we've given our lives over to Christ, we were heirs who were not free to live out the blessings of our inheritance because we had this guardian, the law, that was keeping track of us. Again, this passage in Ephesians sheds light on what Paul means in Galatians 4. Paul's making it clear here in Galatians 4 too that this guardianship lasts until the time that is set by who? By the Father. Then in Galatians 4.4, Paul goes on to say, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so what time is he talking about? He's not talking about the time that we individually give our lives to Jesus. He's making it very clear here that he's talking about the time when Jesus would come and, and be born of a virgin woman, that he would come and interject himself into the world that we live in and live a perfect life and then give that life on the cross for our sins. When the Son of God who has always existed took on flesh, then faith had come and the guardian was able to be removed. Now, there still isn't an individual component to that where you have to say yes to that. You've got to accept and receive that gift of adoption. But I want to assure you by telling you this. If the Lord is choosing you, there's no one who he has chosen who does not want to be a part of his family. To be near to God is a great, wonderful joy. It is an incredible honor to be called his son or daughter. And when he calls you, when he softens your heart and makes it possible for you to understand that you need Jesus Christ and there is no salvation by any other name in heaven or on earth, then you will rejoice in that choice and you will choose him back. So true freedom is not getting to do whatever you want to do. What we want to do is often wicked. You don't have the power to secure what you want. You don't have the knowledge to know what you should want. So there is a better kind of freedom that we have in Christ. And by grace, we have been set free in this way that now we can trust the Lord God to be our good Father. 
who guides our path and directs our steps to take us where we need to go, even if it's different from where our heart wants to go. So you might say to me then, but how do I know if I'm one of these chosen ones? How do I know if I'm an elect of God, that I'm predestined to experience this great transformation? And Paul makes it clear to us in verse 6. He says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we are no longer mere slaves when we have been given the Holy Spirit of promise. How do you know that you're filled with that Spirit? How do you know that the Spirit is truly in you? In other words, when the Lord calls you, when He breaks your heart down to that point when you're ready, He, he gives you a regenerated heart, then you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The very presence and person of God dwells with you. Now we often, when we think of salvation, we think about Jesus Christ because He went to the cross, He died, He was buried, He rose again. But salvation is not just the work of Christ. God the Father is involved with our salvation too. He sent the Son. He's declaring the plan. Jesus prays to him in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, if there's any other way, remove the cup from my lips. And the Father says, this is the only way. The Holy Spirit, likewise, plays a part in our salvation and that he is our seal of promise, that when we are saved, God gives us this Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to work this transformation that needs to happen so that we'll be less what we were before and more like this Christ who has rescued us from our sin. And so how do you know that you're filled with that Holy Spirit? with the Spirit of Christ. Let me give you a few reasons here today. First of all, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the things of God. If you have the Holy Spirit, then your mind has been supernaturally changed. Many of you probably have somebody in your life who's intellectual, they are intelligent, they are articulate, but when you try to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them, when you open the pages of this book and you try to share the word of God with that intelligent individual, it's like you're speaking a totally different language. They cannot comprehend the need for Christ. They can't see the reason behind the cross. They are baffled by it because the things that are spiritual are hidden from them. When you have the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in your life, those things that were formerly mysteries to you begin to be revealed. Now that doesn't mean you have perfect understanding of all doctrine. You're going to still pick up this Bible from time to time and be confused by it and need more direction and help. But when you have the Holy Spirit, the gospel makes sense. When the Holy Spirit comes into you, your eyes are open. And you've sang that song with us before. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I can see. The reason I can see is because the Holy Spirit has been given to me. I am indwelt with the power of God. And my feeble human mind can now understand eternal things because of His grace in me. So if you can take the word, maybe you don't understand all of it, but you can take the word and it makes sense enough to you to see that you are a sinner, that Jesus Christ is the only perfect Savior, that by trusting in Him and in Him alone, you can be redeemed from your sin. If you can believe these things and understand them and say amen to these things, if you hold them near to your heart, then the Holy Spirit is working through you. You are understanding things that the lost world cannot understand. 
1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13 says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And when it says those who are spiritual, it doesn't mean those who have crystals hanging from the rearview mirror of their car and who burn incense on the weekends when they're a little down. Being spiritual is something much bigger than that, okay? Being spiritual means having the Holy Spirit. And there are many people who walk through this earth and they say they're spiritual people, but if they don't have the Spirit of God in them through salvation, then they're not as spiritual as they think themselves to be. When we have the Holy Spirit, we can read the Word, we can understand it. God makes it more and more clear as we come alongside Him, as we engage in the activities of the body of Christ, and as we learn from His eternal Word together. Secondly, if you have the Holy Spirit... Some of the evidence of that is that the Holy Spirit comforts you and intercedes for you. Romans 8, 26 through 27 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness. Anybody been here, been weak before? I've been weak before. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Have you been comforted in a supernatural way before how the Lord just brings a peace to you when everything in the world says you should be upside down with anxiety and worry? Have you ever experienced that before? It is possible to go through tremendous trial and hardship and pain and yet by the power of the Spirit in you, you don't react the way that natural you would react. But instead, your feet stay firmly planted on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, and you're able to think clearly and to take one step forward at a time, to endure, to stay calm, to keep focused on the Lord, and to trust Him as He walks you through that mess, holding your hand tightly in His own hand. I don't know if you've been watching any of these videos that have come out of the campfire and the Malibu fires, but there's some tremendous, tremendous cell phone videos of people getting out of that mess. And I'm sure there's probably some stories that we'll never see from people who didn't make it. But if you watch these dramatic escapes, it's amazing to me how almost every one of them evokes the name of God. As the fire is creeping towards the car and you hear car's tires exploding from the heat around them and as they're driving forward and trying to continue to make progress, you hear almost every one of those videos, God help me, God help me. Somebody crying for help from a power greater than themselves. And I, I, I have to know that some of those people don't know God. They're not near to the Lord God. They're just calling out of desperation because they don't have any options left. And that freedom that they were trying to keep for themselves They've proven that they're at the end of it. They don't have the ability to get through the situation. And then they're crying out in desperation, maybe God will help me if I call on his name. But there are other videos that you watch. Other examples of people who are driving through terrible inferno with kids in the car. And with calm, they are praying to the Lord. God, you are in control. You can get us through this. We trust you, God. Keep us safe. Help our car steer straight through this fog. We can't see anything. It's amazing to hear some of those 
true believers trusting with a calm heart. There's even a video I watched of a dad whose five-year-old daughter said, we got to go back to the house, Dad. It's, everything's burning down around us. And he says, no, honey, we're going to be okay. We're going to keep going forward, and we're just going to stay away from the fire the best we can. And he was so calm in that moment, and I think, there's no way that happens without the Holy Spirit gripping a person and giving them the strength that is supernatural, that is spiritual, that is beyond their own strength. That Holy Spirit that God gives to us is a comforter and a counselor. He expresses the desires and the groanings of our hearts to our God so that we are not aliens to him. He knows everything that is going on in the depth of our heart. And so if you have been comforted by this God in such a way that you've been able to endure what other people could not endure, that's likely evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you and that you are one of God's chosen people. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit that God gives to those who believe in Jesus Christ will lead you. It leads you through your life. Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, the Holy Spirit is going to lead in a primary way and a secondary way. How does He primarily lead? It's connected to the first thing we talked about. The Holy Spirit is going to help you understand this book. He's going to help you understand what God has revealed that you need to know. And as the Holy Spirit helps you to interpret this book and understand what it means to your life, then you're going to see the clear light of His truth shining on the path that you're supposed to walk. If you're wondering if you should do a thing, and the Word says that you shouldn't do that thing, God is telling you directly, do not do that thing. And the Holy Spirit is helping you to understand that in such a way that you can walk and obey that truth. So the Word of God is the primary way that the Holy Spirit leads us. And by helping us to understand and interpret it, He keeps us from getting that wrong. But there are also other times when the Holy Spirit just simply moves you to do something or to be something for the Lord. And there's not a scripture necessarily to back it up, but you just know there's a calling on your life. There was a calling on my life to be a minister of the gospel. Uh, I knew it wasn't from me because it wasn't what I wanted to do. God had to convince me that his will was better than mine. But that calling, that feeling was very clear. I knew the Holy Spirit wasn't going to let me ignore it forever. And there might be a time in your life when the Lord leads you by the power of his Spirit to go exactly where you need to go. He will, you probably look back on the course of your life and you've seen times when he led you out of destruction and you didn't even know it. He was keeping you from, from being torn apart. He was keeping you from the destruction of your own will. And yet you didn't even see it until after the fact. Praise God that the Spirit leads those whom God has saved. Fourthly, the Holy Spirit gives us spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. And we're not just talking about like monetary provision here or a job. We're talking about real spiritual abilities that were not ours before salvation, that God is now going to enhance in us, is going to bring to the surface that we can now use for the, the betterment of His church. 1 Corinthians 12.1 says, All these, and it's talking about gifts, all these gifts are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. God's Spirit will give us an opportunity a resource that we can use to the blessing of our brothers and sisters in his church. Now remember, this is from the God who himself is willing to serve, right? We talked about how perfect freedom isolates you from love. God is a God of love. So he himself becomes a servant for us. Does that make sense? The God who is King of kings and Lord of lords, the God who is sovereignly ruling over every detail of the universe girded his loins, 
got down on his knees and did what a servant was not required to do. He washed the feet of his own disciples. He blessed them. And so too, if God is giving us gifts through the Holy Spirit, should we not be willing to use those gifts to the betterment of his church? Shouldn't we be willing to put our personal freedoms aside for a moment and bless with love our brothers and sisters who are saved the same way we were saved? And so God will give you, through the power of the Spirit, some kind of a gift. It might be the gift of knowledge. It might be the gift of faith. You might need to come alongside brothers and sisters who are weaker in the faith and encourage them and not let them lose heart. You might be given the gift of of service where you're ready and willing to step up when the time is right and to use your power, to use your resources to bless somebody who doesn't have them. You might be given the gift of, of giving where you're there to provide for the mission of God to provide for the needs of the the poor and the underprivileged. God has so many different gifts that he can bless you with, and those gifts were intended to be used in accordance with the leading of the Holy Spirit to bless his church and to make it stronger. A fifth thing that the Holy Spirit will do, and this is evidence that it is within you, the Holy Spirit will convict your heart. Now those who don't have the Holy Spirit can experience conviction too, can't they? They can feel bad about what they did, but typically that feeling of, uh, of, of conviction is I'm so sorry I'm about to get caught for something bad. I'm so sorry that I'm going to lose a resource because of the consequences of my actions. But when the Holy Spirit is riding shotgun with you, when the Holy Spirit is in your heart and is directing your path and guiding you, when you sin, the Holy Spirit will by necessity grieve you over that. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to continue to walk in sin forever without making your heart heavy over what you are doing. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The hardest counseling sessions I have ever had have been when somebody is walking in sin. They can clearly see it. They profess Christ, but they have no intention of turning away from that sin. And I've literally been told by someone, I just don't even feel bad about this anymore. Now there are two distinct possibilities that you have to consider. And my counseling changes at that point. It's no longer, brother and sister, you've professed Christ, now let's walk in what we've said we are. At that moment, when somebody's not feeling conviction anymore, when they're not grieved by the Holy Spirit, the question changes. The question is no longer, how can we correct this sin? The question is, do you even know God as your Savior? Because either you are in sin and God just doesn't care about you and the Holy Spirit has failed, Or maybe you don't have the Holy Spirit to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. I think I know which one of those is much more likely to be true. So if you have the Holy Spirit of of God in you, you can sin and try to ignore that feeling for a time, but the Holy Spirit will speak up. The Holy Spirit will grieve you. There will be tears over your sin. You will feel burdened by them. You will not be able to go on your knees and pray to a God that you are insulting with your sin. You will feel compelled to confess that to Him and to ask again for His forgiveness because the Holy Spirit is holy and pure. And that job, the Holy Spirit, one of the jobs is to sanctify you and to make you more pure and holy. And part of that is done through the grieving process. When we grieve over our sin and the bad fruit that we used to bear, then God prunes it away and He gives us strength to walk in newness of life. And then finally, the Holy Spirit cries out to God within you. If you are a son or a daughter of the King, if you have been predestined to this salvation we've been talking about, then the Holy Spirit is going to cry out within you towards God, and you're going to have a different view of who that God is. 
You're not crying out, oh God of judgment, who I don't know, I'm in an inferno, I hope you'll get me out. Rather, you're crying out to the Lord, Abba, Father, you protect me. You know what is best for me. You have a plan for this. I trust you. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is a term of affection, a term of, of intimacy with the Father, that we are near to Him, that we can call Him our Daddy. Our hearts no longer identify God as this condemning judge who restrains or binds us, but rather we have come to trust His rules and His guidelines to such a degree that they are a joy to us. We know that when He says no, it's for our benefit and our blessing. We have come to see Him differently. Our Abba Father, who is over us and has made us our own, only wants what is best for us. He will secure for us our greatest freedom. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What does that mean, believer? It means that if you have looked at this list of evidences that the Holy Spirit is in your life, and you can say, yes, I have felt that. Yes, I know that that has happened with me. Then you are no longer subject to the elemental principles, to those, those feelings and desires that used to rule us before we were with Christ, the ways of the world that try to define the greatest freedom as absolute ability to do what you want to do all the time. You don't, have to be, you don't have to be pulled away by those anymore. You're no longer subject to those elemental principles. You are no longer a, ju a junior heir with no rights. You have graduated to adulthood. You have the rights and inheritance of God in your life. Your relationship to God is no longer determined like the world would determine it by race, or by gender, or by rank, or by ethnicity. You're no longer under the harsh tutor of the law. You're no longer shut up in the prison of sin. You're no longer cursed to failure as you look at that law and think to yourself, I can't live to that. You're no longer outside the promise of God's chosen people. Rather, you are now set free by your Abba Father to enter in and to dwell with Him. He has chosen you out of your lostness. He has changed your identity. He changes your understanding of what it means to be truly free. And if you are in His home, if you are His son, His daughter, then you are free indeed. Would you bow with me as we close in a word of prayer? God, it is so good to be loved by You, Lord God. And I pray that You would forgive us for the stubbornness that we often exhibit to you when we read your word and we think, wow, that's, that's going to be hard for me to follow that command. That's going to be difficult. I'm going to have to make some sacrifices for that. Lord, help us to understand freedom in new ways. That we experience less freedom when we try to wrestle free from your grip. The greatest freedom that we can have is when we submit ourselves gratefully and joyfully to your will. So we praise you, Lord God, for sending your Son into this place to suffer and die on our behalf. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have, in your great mercy, chosen to redeem us from our rebelliousness and to make us your children. Father, we look around us in this world and there are lost ones still abounding in our land. And so we ask that you would give us the courage to go out and to preach this gospel message, Father. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would go before us to soften the hearts that will hear this gospel message and will allow this seed of hope and truth to be planted 
And I pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be a part of that mission. We love you, and we thank you for redeeming us and making us your own. Thank you for letting us be a part of this wonderful, blessed family. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.